to EcoVision, a podcast devoted to helping you see clearly in the seemingly post-fact era of smoke and mirrors. We'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, each with a unique vision for the future. Now more than ever, it is critical for each of us to harness our strengths and our skill sets to take control of our collective destiny. Strap in and let's see where today's conversation takes us. It's time for another episode of ColecoVision. America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. What makes this movement unique is we are taking on the corporate establishment. We are taking on the greed of Wall Street. What are we talking about? We're talking about a hedge fund that serves a bunch of billionaire family offices? Who cares? It is a movement which says the United States will have health care for all as a human right. This is our chance to answer that call. Let them get wiped out. Who cares? They don't get the summer in the Hamptons? Who cares? Claiming my time. Reclaiming my time. Claiming my time. This is about our lives. American lives. And that shows you what one voice can do. One voice can change a room. And if it can change a room, it can change a city. And if it can change a city, it can change a state. And if it can change a state, it can change a nation. And if it can change a nation, it can change the world. Aloha, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of ColecoVision. I'm your host, Coleco Castile, coming to you live here from my home office nook in Vallejo, California, in the middle of a global pandemic. Couldn't be a better time to launch a podcast. I really do appreciate you guys joining us here on the very first episode. I'm really excited about uh, today's guest. Uh, today, I'm going to be speaking with a good friend of mine, Jason Ortiz, uh, from the Minority Cannabis Business Association, uh, MCBA. You can check him out at minoritycannabis.org. Uh, we're going to be chatting with Jason today a little bit about sort of his his journey into the cannabis reform movement, the work we're doing at MCBA, as well as sort of his background in progressive politics and organizing, and sort of uh, his vision vision for the future hopefully post-Trump. So I do want to go ahead and just welcome to the show, Jason Ortiz. Jason, appreciate you joining us. How are you doing, sir? Right on. Thank you, Coleco. I'm doing all right. I'm here in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, mostly my family's been unaffected by all the craziness that's been going on. But, you know, definitely being an organizer in this moment, it's been sort of reimagining how we do organizing and activism. Uh, so I'm excited to see, you know, what folks do. But it's been a uh, it's been a trying time as an organizer up in the Northeast. I can imagine. There's no doubt that the world is a lot different than it was even two <laughs> months ago. Um, so right. many aspects of uh, society in our lives were reconfiguring and figuring out what does the path forward look like. Um, so I, you know, I would might as well remark on it anyways. Uh, you had this really great intro, which we did not discuss before uh, going and recording. But I mean, that's basically now kind of the standard intro for any sort of interview or I guess meeting mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, COVID era. Huh? 
Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Gotta let everybody I'm inspired. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's good to be able to check in with everybody as humans and uh, let them know how we're doing personally. I know it's not yeah. the easiest of times. Uh, nearly 30 million people are, are out of the job after, over the last couple of months here. You know, over 80,000 people have died now from COVID-19. Uh, certainly is scary times, but, you know, the, the show does go on and we do need to keep mm-hmm. um, pushing, especially for the issues, obviously, we're going to be talking about today. Uh, which is social equity in the cannabis industry. Um, but first, I want to go ahead and just kind of introduce um, you, uh, Jason Ortiz, to our audience here a little bit. And I'd love to kind of, you know, share your story with them a little bit about sort of your background and how you came to now um, be the president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, um, which obviously <laughs> yeah, every, is doing every, every time I hear it, it even sounds a little wild whenever somebody says it. No, um, I, but, you know, because I got my start a long time ago, I'm 37 years old now, but I was 16 when I first got arrested for cannabis possession, simple cannabis possession. I was in high school. It was in the year 2000. It was a little bit before 9-11. As a millennial, older millennial, you know, I had uh, 9-11 happen in high school, but the year before that, I was suspended for the entire school year uh, for simple possession of two joints, two poorly rolled joints that I had in my pocket. And we got the called the construction worker or someone called security uh, as we were smoking on the way to school. So we got arrested, we got thrown out of school, I got to enter the criminal justice system where I got to learn some really important uh, terms that I thought, you know, kind of changed my life and made me the activist I was today. <clears throat> and so one of those was the war on drugs, so that there was this whole big machine of different laws that was impacting how certain communities were uh, allowed or not allowed to use drugs. Uh, the school to prison pipeline, uh, which was a term that I became intimately aware of mm-hmm. uh, once I was thrown out of school for cannabis possession, uh, and then selective enforcement. And so that is the term used that, you know, laws are not evenly applied across all communities. Certain communities are forced to have to deal with those laws more than others. Uh, and so when I learned about these different pieces, I realized it wasn't that like me as an individual, Jason Ortiz made some grievous mistake, uh, but that society decided they wanted to criminalize this behavior, uh, whether it was good for you or not, the behavior itself. And so from there, uh, I was very mad and I was lucky enough to have the internet around and I did a lot of research on drug policy uh, and I came out of it as an activist and I wanted to make sure that it, no one else had to go through this ridiculousness uh, that I had to. It was just so disproportionate for this particular plant versus things like stealing or fighting. Um, and so luckily, I was also the beneficiary of the drug policy movement down the road. I was able to go to college because of organizers through orgs like SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, that changed, changed a very specific law which was the Higher Education Act's Federal Aid Elimination Penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big mouthful that basically was the law that denied people financial aid if you had, been, if you had a drug arrest or conviction. Uh, and since somebody had changed that after I graduated from high school, uh, I was actually able to go to the University of Connecticut and join SSDP uh, and get financial aid. So I was both negatively impacted by the war on drugs, but then also very positively impacted by the movement to end the war on drugs. And so when I got to see how all sides of this equation impacted my life, it was clear that this was going to be something I was going to be working on for a long time. Uh, But I didn't see myself at the time uh, thinking of it in a business sense, or at least a legal business sense. I had been a cultivator and I had continued to uh, consume and sell weed uh, and cannabis ever after that. Like the suspension definitely didn't stop that part of my interaction with the plant. Uh, It just made me more political about it. Uh, And so now moving, you know, a little bit forward to where we are now with MCBA, 
uh, I was lucky enough through SSDP to meet a fantastic woman named Shalene Title, who's now the cannabis commissioner in Massachusetts. Uh, and she recruited me to MCBA in order to draft our first model policies. And so I was getting frustrated uh, as you know, I graduated, um, left college, actually went to do some work in the ending the death penalty movement for a few years immediately after college. Um, but as I was doing that work, I noticed the cannabis industry was booming and you know, Colorado happened. Um, but it was Ohio that tried to legalize and only a very few number of people were going to own the entire industry that I realized that the movement was taking a detour from where I wanted it to go. Uh, and so from there, I connected with Shalene and asked her kind of what we could do about it. And she recommended that I join MCBA, uh, help her draft model policy that we could push throughout the country. Uh, and we did. We were able to have that first policy summit actually one week after Trump got elected. Uh, so that was another time of great shift in perspective uh, and re-understanding of the world that we were in. Um, and so from there, I've been able to work on cannabis equity policies across the country uh, and eventually became president of MCBA now on my, I think it's fourth term on the board. Uh, so it's been a wild ride. It's definitely been something that has stuck with me since a very long time ago. Uh, and, you know, it's been with me as an activist, There's the idea of drug policy, you know, since I've been very young. So I'm excited to see now we're in sort of a different phase of the movement than we were when I first joined SSDP. Uh, you know, cannabis is legal a lot of places, so, sort of. Um, and so now we're at the place where we sort of have to reimagine both how we're going to end the war on drugs, but also those that are trying to keep prohibition alive are creating, you know, war on drugs 2.0. And we have to be a step ahead of those folks. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that perspective. And I agree that there's definitely um, we've we've gone through a shift in the movement and there is still this, this focus that we need to make sure that, like you said, we're not heading into a war on drugs 2.0. So um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, like what sort of, you know, lessons when you were an SSDP organizer on campus, uh, did you learn that you're now maybe applying uh, in your role at um, MCBA? <laughs> That's a good question. So I think, you know, I was lucky enough, I went through the Occupy movement, that was a big part of my activist training, uh, and how we can hold meetings and convenings and assemblies in a way that keeps everyone engaged and, you know, participating. And I would say that is the number one thing that has kept me going throughout my years in various kinds of organizing is just knowing how to run a meeting in a way that uh, makes sure folks don't dominate those that have really good ideas, but maybe are quiet or able to participate. And we're able to actually take action on ideas and not simply complain over and over again. And so for me, that leftist tradition, that progressive organizing tradition, um, give me a process that I could apply to every new situation as we went. And so it was also a big reason why I was able to do a lot of work with the national Puerto Rican agenda and the Connecticut Puerto Rican agenda. And that was a big part of my last 10 years or so. Uh, I spent a good number of years organizing specifically on Puerto Rico and all the economic justice issues there. Uh, and it was the same thing, right? We still needed to have committees. We still needed to have functioning meetings with agendas uh, and folks taking notes and making sure we're moving on stuff. And so that core organizing um, process was one that I, you know, it was, I learned it at the time because we needed to do it at the time and the meetings were clearly not being done well. Uh, but then I started to train other people on how to do it. And it is incredible to see now the difference in a trained facilitator versus someone who is just, you know, kind of throwing a conference call up and seeing what happens. Um, so for me, that was, that was really huge. No, that's big time. I definitely remember back in the Occupy Wall Street days, the uh, human megaphone and, uh, you know, they definitely, <laughs> you know, being able to corral uh, hundreds of people when you're trying to all discuss a topic is definitely a skill set. Right. Well, and, you know, think about it now, right? Like, 
Occupy Wall Street, like right now, would be just unfathomable, right? Like it was just the most massive civil disobedience we're all going to gather, right? That was like the whole point of it. Uh, and I just learned so much so fast in that trial by fire where this like living beast of an entity known as Occupy was just growing and like changing in front of our eyes. Uh, to think about how it would happen now is just. It would be very, I don't know how the state would respond, I guess, right? If folks started setting up camps and things like that. Um, But the rapid training of each other that happened during Occupy, I think is something that is left, you know, is uh, an undersold gem there of that movement that created so many other organizers that are now part of Bernie's campaign or were part of Bernie's campaign. You know, he clearly had an Occupy messaging to him and that I think, you know, we'll see moving forward, all the occupiers ending up in amazing organizing positions. I think they already are, but we'll see it happen ever more so as we move forward. Absolutely. And we'll touch more on the uh, sort of um, progressive organizing side of things, because I definitely want to come back to that sort of occupy slash Bernie conversation, Mm -hmm. because I do think like, we're very much living in sort of a you know, the world where the Occupy movement sort of went their disparate ways, but is now kind of at, you know, in the last um, primary election coalesced around a single campaign. And Bernie really, you know, was pushing that message of the 99 versus the Mm -hmm. 1%. So I totally 1000% agree with, with that analysis for sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, Oh, and it'll come up with cannabis, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh yeah, no doubt. And I was actually going to say, you know, you're, you were talking about how, you know, if Occupy Wall Street happened today, like, could we really fathom that? Like, what does that look like? And like that, obviously, you know, it was pushing a narrative that now is very mainstream. But at the time, um, people didn't quite understand. Uh, but then it was it became very visceral, obviously, through that movement. And I think we're kind of in the similar place with MCBA, right? Like where if you were talking about the marijuana legalization movement 10 years ago versus where it is now. 10 years ago, we were very much all about sort of take what you can get, right? But thanks to groups like MCBA, we're having a much different conversation now. Can you maybe touch on that a little bit in terms of like, you know, how I think Justin Striegel from Normal often says this, it's not anymore about when we legalize, but how we legalize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I do look back at that first policy summit as sort of the beginning of the movement's ability to very clearly articulate what it is that we want and what we'll settle for and what we won't settle for. And it created consensus within the movement and a tool that people could actually bring, like physically bring with them wherever they were to say, I want this. And this has been vetted by 30 amazing people that got together to make sure it was as efficient and effective as you know possible. And that, that was all done by people of color, funded by people of color, written by people of color. And so that tool didn't exist before then. And so we were able to really go everywhere. Uh, We added to that the municipal ordinance that made it on a local level. So now, wherever you are, if you want to advocate at your city council or at your state, or we also have resources for the federal, but city council or state, you can bring our policies and say, why aren't we working towards this as our standard? And so I think it's really important that we have those sort of like consensus built tools that we're all saying, yes, we want this particular thing. And that's why policies can serve as that because they're very clear in what's going what what it says it wants to do and we can agree or disagree if folks want to endorse it or not um so i think that was a big difference right that's something like occupy the list was all over the place right there was it was not clear at all what people wanted and with mcba we decided we weren't going to try to organize everyone we were going to try to equip everyone 
with tools for the, so that they can more effectively organize wherever they are because we can't and don't have the capacity. We're a little bigger now, but we don't really have the capacity to provide support for everyone wherever they go. Um, that being said, we can put a sword in their hand and say, you know, let us know how it goes. And, you know, if you find out ways that you can fight effectively or if you have a win, you know, we want to be there to help support it and provide resources and share your win with the rest of the country. So once we had some consensus around the tool, we also had that network built of all the people that convened at that time. And so that gave us a huge boost just in being able to contact folks from coast to coast uh, and do things like mobilize in DC. So with cannabis right now, it's clearly shifting into the more corporate side of things where, you know, when I first got involved in SSDP, the focus was very much criminal justice reform. Uh, it is not that way anymore. And that is unfortunate. And we can shift that at MCBA and other equity organizations will and need to shift more of a focus on a criminal justice reform. Um, so we're, you know, kind of trying to manage this tightrope of ensuring folks are able to access licenses and achieve ownership, making sure communities get reinvested and get an equitable share of the benefits that come from legalization and also making sure that our political prisoners, those that have been arrested for cannabis crimes are returned to their families and able to live a full life. And hopefully in my opinion, have a, a path to prosperity in the industry if they would like one. Uh, and so making sure we're very explicitly clear if someone is released from prison, what are the programs and supports that can get them all the way through getting their record expunged to getting a job in the industry to owning a business? Uh, and so now when we have the conversation of whether people support legalization or not, it's a much more complicated yes or no. Uh, I remember I was in Hartford State Capitol and one of our champions, uh, you know, I knew who he was and I said, hey, I want you to check out this equity language. He's like, oh, don't worry. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm like, really? You support all of this? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when we went and got into the details, he realized I was asking for something much bigger uh, that he, than he ever even imagined. And, you know, we, we have to have those shock moments where people are like, you want to do what? Uh, and say, yes, we do. We want to put those people who are what you call felons, or people that have felonies, at the front of the line for owning multi-million dollar companies. Uh, and it is a, a bold claim, right? And folks are not used to that. Uh, but that's the conversations we're having now. And in states like New York, uh, and, and Connecticut, where I am, legalization won't move forward without equity. Uh, so we went from being sort of this fringe thing where folks aren't really sure what it is to being a mandatory part of public policy moving forward. Can you talk about some of those details in terms of things that, you know, MCBA as an organization, we may consider to be sort of needing to be baked into the cake of a legalization bill in order for it to meet, you know, the basic standards of equity that others may be hesitant about or maybe need more education around? Sure. I mean, look at our model policies as a buffet of good ideas. So there's never sort of one individual deal breaker. I'll say that like, if it doesn't have this, you won't take it. You do have to kind of take the whole meal and see overall, is this going to benefit our communities or not? But, you know, we do look at those three major prongs, criminal justice reform, which is going to include releasing people from prison, uh, expungement of records, and also reentry services, helping folks find housing, uh, dealing with reintegration with their families that may not always be easy, uh, and other you know, support services like that. Uh, then we want to talk about community investment. This is as a community, as geographic areas, our people, people of color, were disproportionately targeted by police for arrest and disruption of our families. And that caused both social, you know, emotional harm, but also economic damage in untold amount. And so we want the state to admit that that happened. It's the data is over and abundantly clear that it happened, uh, but we want the state to admit that they made 
a racially motivated decision uh, to, to disrupt our communities and put money in to heal the damage done by the war on drugs. And so that is a big one uh, that, that is hard to do effectively, that folks will definitely have difficulty at state legislatures ensuring the money goes where it needs to go. Uh, but it's a conversation that has to be part of the conversation, no matter how difficult or um, challenging implementation might be. Uh, and then lastly, it's ownership. And that is who gets to actually own the businesses that are going to be created after prohibition is ended, uh, how those businesses are shaped, how much it costs to start a business, and whether or not communities that were impacted by the war on drugs will be able to enter that industry. Uh, and there's lots of different ways that that could happen. Uh, we look at things like barriers to entry. Uh, that's a term that applies to any way that it makes it more difficult for someone to start a business. So that could be a high uh, fee. If the state decides they want to have a fee of $100 versus $10,000, that's a decision by politicians to decide how much they're going to do. Uh, and they can lower it if they want to. Um, whether or not you will need to be able to show a million dollars in capital, that's a decision by the state that they can say yes or no, we want to do that. So there's a lot, whether or not someone needs to have a physical location already paid for and under lease in order to move forward in their licensing, that's another expense that is just massive and really hurting smaller businesses. So there's a lot of smaller steps along the process that the government and or private business can put barriers in the way of everyone that's not already super wealthy. So we wanna eliminate those barriers. Um, what we're seeing is that, of course, the big industries wanna preserve their monopoly. And so they're investing tremendous resources, setting up all kinds of hoops and hurdles for folks to go through. And so it's a, a constant uh, battle back and forth to see where we land at the end of the day with legislation. Uh, but our model policy is there to always sort of be the guiding star of this is what it could be. So we may accept less than the perfect, but it should be closer to our bill than uh, just a completely white, wealthy owned market. You know, I, I, I find it interesting, you know, I know cannabis is really a nonpartisan issue, but you know, a lot of the things you were talking about, whether it's like setting up barriers to entry for small, like barriers to entry to small for small businesses, or whether it's talking about sort of, um, you know, the government picking winners and losers, those are talking points that conservative politicians have been using for so long in terms of like trying to help small businesses and be, you know, beneficial to businesses. So I, I'm curious, sort of your, you know, your thoughts around this idea that like what seems to be work for other industries is somehow completely thrown out the window whenever we're talking about cannabis policy. Yeah. Well, it has a different context than all these other industries, right? Like it is still illegal. And so there's always going to be just like bizarre federalism problems <laughs> when it comes to cannabis as different folks uh, ease off on different pieces of the prohibition differently. Um, like obviously having medical marijuana be, a big force in all of this is now the the folks that were pioneers in the medical industry have become big cannabis and are now the ones pushing out the smaller guys. Uh, and so there's this multi-tier process that's happened and every state in the country has a different cannabis situation. Uh, and whether that comes to opportunities, whether that comes to criminal justice reform, it's just this whole mess all across the country of different approaches and different, th different, uh, opportunities, which, which means, you know, if you're born in one place, you could be in a complete prohibition, felony to sell a gram kind of state, or if you're born in California, you have very different concerns. And so as a movement, right, like the diversity of issues, the diversity of where people are at is just so wide that it can be very difficult to have 
uh, a coordinated effort in any umbrella org that big. Um, and so I think like maybe the plant itself is nonpartisan, um, but how society is structured is not nonpartisan. And I think that's what we're really discussing when we talk about changing cannabis laws. Cool. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate that viewpoint. And speaking of sort of where people are on the spectrum as it relates to cannabis policy, Mitch McConnell. Uh, <laughs> My man. <laughs> gotta love him. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell today actually uh, came out and gave a statement because the House Democrats had introduced their their latest COVID-19 relief bill in the House, um, which the, the Republicans are obviously... Uh, not feeling good about, but McConnell actually took time out of his day on the Senate floor today to call <laughs> out provisions of that bill that were specifically put in there for the cannabis industry as it relates to safe banking. And he went even a step farther. He actually would called out the provisions that MCBA helped get instituted into the safe banking language long before the COVID relief bill uh, that, that has to do uh, with uh, equity businesses uh, and their access to federal regulation. So I'm just going to read a little bit from Marijuana Moment, uh, the headline being Mitch McConnell and other GOP lawmakers slam marijuana banking provisions in coronavirus bill. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell complained in a floor speech on Thursday the House Democrats were pushing for diversity detectives to study equity in the marijuana industry as their latest coronavirus relief package, as part of their latest coronavirus relief package. <laughs> like several other GOP legislators in recent days, the majority leader said Democrats were making partisan demands in the new legislation filed this week, and he zeroed in on a specific part of a section that would protect banks that service cannabis businesses from being penalized by federal lawmaker or federal regulators. So, Jason, I'm gonna go ahead and play the, play this clip from uh, from Mitch. It's a little less than um, 60 seconds, then we'll go ahead and get your response on the other side. Sure. Or not. And then, Madam President, the cherry on top. The bold new policy from Washington Democrats that will kick the coronavirus to the curb and save American families from this crisis. Here it is. Here it is. New annual studies on diversity and inclusion within the cannabis industry. Not one study, but two of them. Let me say that again. The Democrats suppose coronavirus bill includes taxpayer funded studies to measure diversity and inclusion among the people who profit off of marijuana. The word cannabis appears in the bill 68 times, more times than the word job. All right. That's probably enough from Mitch. But Jason, what do you, what do you think about that when he's uh, calling out? <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't know he'd done that. I'm like, man, I got to get press release about this. But um, I think, you know, I find it interesting that it is mainstream to the point now where we are debating it in the terms of you know disaster relief and mitch mcconnell nonpartisan champion you know extraordinaire decided that he wanted to to use that as a talking point uh of why things are bad so you know it's a win for the movement for sure we're, we're clearly in the minds of the leadership uh of the government uh, and now the question is just, what do we do with this, this mess? Right. But I think, you know, again, we're at the point now where we're able to get our desires, our wants, our programs put into federal policy, put into state policy, and we have to do everything we can to 
you know, marshal enough resources to be able to move on all these opportunities simultaneously. And so Mitch McConnell, you know, taking time to try to slow us down uh, just shows what level of opportunity is it in front of us uh, should we choose to accept it. You know, as you said, we are now a mainstream industry. Um, despite the fact, as you had mentioned earlier, still remaining federally illegal. Um, you know, as we've seen over the last couple months, like cannabis is now um, considered essential, right? It's literally an essential business right. where states have deemed that in order for society to function properly, these businesses should, should stay open, right? So we've gone from having a federally illegal product, and it still is, to being considered essential to these state governments. So it is super interesting how we have gone, as ArcView has been saying recently, uh, from illegal to essential in such a short time span. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. really fascinating. Well, I think you know, this goes back again to selective enforcement, right? Like the, the, the marijuana industry is the world's largest uh, organized crime operation we've ever seen, right? Like, it's the, the federal government just letting it happen. Uh, and they're selectively choosing not to enforce it because the consequences would be so negative and they have been so negative forever. Uh, and so it is a wild time to be a policymaker where we now see, I mean, there's still federal prisoners for cannabis, um, while at the same time, legal cannabis can pour millions and close to billions of dollars into federal lobbying. Uh, and what does that sausage process produce, right? It's, it is rather bizarre, the, the moment we're in, but no matter how weird, you know, the trip is at the moment, uh, we're winning regardless right so it's been very much you know like trying to you know have a campaign plan on a psychedelic trip right where it's just like everything's so weird and bizarre we got to keep moving forward uh and we're going to good, good and better places every time no doubt about it. We're definitely continuing to move the ball forward. And uh, <clears throat> at MCBA specifically, you know, I do really think that this organization has helped, uh, you know, move the conversation light years ahead of where it was uh, when it first started, uh, I think in 2015. Um, so, right. you know, really do appreciate all the work you're doing there as president mm-hmm. of the board. I guess I had forgotten to mention it off the top, full disclosure. I also sit on the board of uh, MCBA and I'm proud to do so. <laughs> we do have a, a great group of uh, badass people on there who are doing mm-hmm. some really amazing work work uh, to make sure that, you know, we are making an impact for the long term um, for our communities and making sure that we are we have the ability to to build mm-hmm. generational wealth uh, to combat what you had mentioned earlier, which was, you know, an actual <clears throat> stated and uh, and acted upon policy of, of mm-hmm. shutting these communities down. For sure. I think, you know, one thing I learned in the movie is sorry to bother you the the organizer in that movie mentioned if you bring problems to a community without any way to solve them they you just end up forcing them to accept them and so i just felt like for so long we were just raising awareness about a problem giving no way to actually solve it and so folks just being resigned that that's going to be the future right and so the shift into like very like intensely solution oriented and very forceful uh, with our position in the movement, right? Like it took some sharp elbows of carving out of space for ourselves there for the first few years. Um, but I can't, you know, not emphasize that enough or right? how important it is to be very clear what you want uh, and then say it with conviction once you figure it out. And I think that's what, what MCBA did differently. Uh, I think that's, it was also made possible because we are both a business organization and an activist organization combined. Um, and so, which creates tensions as well. Um, but I do think 
that those two things we did differently uh, than a lot of other orgs. And I think that's what separated us. And I want to get into some more sort of like progressive politics conversation. But before we leave this MCBA portion of the conversation, you want to go ahead and just kind of uh, let people know sort of like what's coming up later in this year for MCBA, maybe talk about the Assembly R and other ways that people can get involved. Sure. I mean, we got all kinds of stuff going on. It's been an interesting time to be quarantined because uh, it means we get to plan future events, <laughs> at least digital ones. But I think for us, you know, it's it's really an intellectual challenge of bringing the movement together to rewrite our state model bill. And again, to build consensus, which that we can do digitally. It's not as effective as when we come together to do it in person. But the ideas, the laws, the policies, the problems, all of those can be discussed uh, over Zoom, over conference calls, and we plan to do that. So we're looking to have for the fall, for September 1st or so, a brand new, fresh state model bill that will include all the most modern adaptations of cannabis equity that we can find in places like Illinois and Minnesota. And that will be, you know, my personal big focus as far as making sure we're advancing the conversation continuously. Uh, that being said, as a Latino, I want to make sure that my people are not left out of the conversation academically or in the business world. So we're going to be hosting our first international event, the Asamblea Internacional Canabica. Uh, I did it pretty good. Sometimes I get a little tripped up on it. My Spanish isn't totally great. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's going to be an international event where we talk about Latin America and the war on drugs impact on Latin America, the opportunities in cannabis in Latin America, and the amazing cannabis culture in Latin America. And so it's looking like it's going to be around September 18th. It's going to be a digital event. Uh, it's going to be lots of you know Latin-specific programming, of course. It will be primarily in Spanish with English translation. Uh, but the part that I'm going to be focusing on is a Congreso, a Congress, where we'll have representatives from all the countries in Latin America and South America to have at least two to three minutes. Each, each uh, group, we'll see how much time we can give them total. Uh, to say exactly how the United States war on drugs has impacted their communities and what international equity would look like for their country. Uh, I want to start to explore what the concept of international equity is going to look like. And this assembly is sort of the first time we're really going to put that on paper. Um, so that's going to be a really big event for us. And then of course, once things open up again and we're, we're able to lobby in person and organize events, uh, we'll have our opportunity summit coming up and some other great stuff after that. That's awesome. I'm definitely um, jacked up about the assembly. I think this is going to be a big deal. And in a similar way that, you know, the conversation at MCBA is focused around repairing the damage done by the war on drugs to communities uh, of color here in the U.S., there's no doubt about it that the American war on drugs definitely did a lot of damage uh, in other countries, especially in Latin America. So I'm definitely mm -hmm. looking forward to having those conversations. And like you said, figuring out what does equity look like um, in other places outside of our borders. For sure. I mean, like, you know, it directly impacts the immigration conversation here in the United States, right? Like what we did to Mexico is, you know, horrific. Countries like Colombia and the war on drugs over there that was also focused on cocaine, cocaine uh, and defoliating entire sections of rainforest in order to fight the war on drugs, right? Like it's just as bad, if not worse, in, in Latin America, what we did. And we're also seeing places like Colombia, Bogota, and shout out to Carol Ortega, who's helping us with the Asamblea and all of her fantastic work. Um, but it was also part of the peace agreement between the FARC and the Colombian government to ensure that cannabis farmers were going to be able to continue to farm and continue to sell and provide for their families. And so the transition away from a war on drugs economy has very real consequences for folks that are currently in the manufacturing creation of cannabis or other drugs. And so 
getting equity right could mean the difference between peace and war in a country. And I think we have to understand that that is the scale of impact of these policies. It's the scale of impact of the decisions that folks like Anslinger and Nixon made. Uh, and it means undoing it and us putting in the work to undo it will also have tremendous impact as far as peace and, and being able to live peacefully uh, in, co in cooperation with our other countries and other people. And so it is a, a big scale of a problem, but I've been encouraged by how rapidly the conversation has changed in the United States. Uh, I can say that the equity conversation in the United States is impacting those countries already. I was fortunate enough to be able to go speak in Bogota twice uh, at events out there, and they are very interested in seeing how their movements and the local farmers there, the local growers, the folks on the ground floor uh, can replicate our work and make the same demands of their government. And so it's very interesting to see how, you know, one meeting in D.C. that happened after Trump got elected ends up rippling out and affecting international drug policy. You know, it's amazing. I do. I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording about sort of uh, the show in general. And I know one of the themes I really want to be pushing hard at people is this idea that the world is run by those who show up, right? And you know, showing <laughs> yeah. up is half the battle. If you're just there and willing to get involved and, you know, put in the effort and do the work, um, we can definitely make a change. And like you said, like the, the ripple effects that come from a single meeting um, can, can, you know, can go out for years beyond that. So I really do appreciate the work you're doing there. I do want to make sure that everybody knows you can go to minoritycannabis.org to check out more about Minority Cannabis Business Association and sign up as a member. Uh, membership starts as low as $100 a year uh, for supporters of the industry if you're not quite in the industry yet. And then if you're in the industry and have a business and are benefiting from the industry but support uh, social equity and a diverse and inclusive industry, then we do have business memberships that start as low as $2,500 a year as well. We definitely would love your support. Also check us out on IG at Minority Cannabis uh, and all the other social platforms as well. So, you know, I really appreciate all the work, like I said, you're doing there at MCBA, Jason, but I know, you know, that's not all you do. You also, you also- <laughs> I don't um, talk about just weed all day. <laughs> right. Well, you also, you know, um, in the mainstream political world, like you said, you live in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. I know you've spent some time doing campaign management for a lot of campaigns and things along that, mm -hmm. that side. I'd love to learn more just about your background as a campaign organizer itself. Um, and then just sort of maybe get your thoughts on, um, you know, how people can get involved even at the local level. I know you've done a lot of, um, you know, city council or mayoral mm -hmm. style um, campaigning as well. Yeah, so I was a movement organizer first, and then I just was always interested in elections and politics. I always thought it was clearly when like the public is going to have their conversation about uh, different policy issues. And so it always made sense to me to be doing both. I never really understood like folks that were like, oh, I don't work in electoral politics. I only work on this side uh, or vice versa. Um, so when I was in college, I ran for state rep was one of the first like sort of main electoral uh, work that I did. And there so, you know, it's a small college town. It basically has a small little branch of this of the adjoining town as part of the district was mostly the college. Uh, and so I ran as an independent and the Democrat that I was running against, generally speaking, uh, you know, he was a nice guy and we were fine, but I definitely made him really nervous because I was getting out there and really just like putting in a lot of work and I had lots of people involved. Uh, w one thing I'll say is we did a great job getting the word out. We did a great job with voter registration and did a horrendous job during GOTV. I didn't even uh, track my IDs as they say. And so like 
once I learned how the major party does things, looking back, I was like, oh, wow, we definitely uh, did not do what we were supposed to be doing. Um, but it was a good experience, right? We lost, I got 15% of the vote as a college student uh, with no party backing uh, and raised about ten thousand dollars. It was a huge amount. I felt like solid. at the time, yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, yeah, you know. And it was it was interesting because I was still a student, uh, and I was still an SSDP actually. And I had posters of me in classrooms and shit. And so it got by the end of it, I was I was over it. Like I enjoyed I enjoyed it very much. It was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. I was able to do this thing called camp partying uh, that my opponent was not, but I could go to all the college parties and give out my literature and talk to people at parties because when you're Running for office, it's hard to find big groups of people that you can introduce yourself to quickly. Um, but as a student, that was not a problem. I could actually get in front of lots of people uh, very quickly. It was just maybe they weren't in the best shape to get a political message. But regardless, we were able to really explore lots of things there. Um, and it was interesting to see also so like some of the more far left friends I had sort of disavow me for a time because I was becoming part of the machine. Uh, and then, you know, how other folks that gravitated more towards more mainstream politics actually got closer to what I was doing at that time. Um, so I've been kind of jumping between both of those worlds back and forth since then, and really focusing on races that do have a very progressive candidate in a rather blue district, uh, and making sure that we get younger, better people in there. And so I did that first one. Then I had a friend who uh, decided to run for state rep, but couldn't find a campaign manager. And eventually he was uh, in a tough spot. And so he called me. He was like, hey, I just need someone that knows how to organize. Uh, and he hired me. It was my first time. We had $2,000 for my first uh, campaign gig. I horrendously undercharged, uh, but <laughs> now that I know. But at the time, I got to run the whole show and I got to you know, oversee his budget of $40,000 for the campaign that he hadn't spent really much any of it yet. So from there, I had to bring on staff. I had to work with their designer to figure out what was going on. And we had to start tracking IDs and thinking we, digital wasn't as big of a thing at the time. Um, but we did have to start thinking about how we were going to be engaging on the internet. Uh, that was 2012 was my first campaign manager position. Uh, we lost that one. Uh, it was actually a woman who was pro cannabis legalization as a Republican. And I like, didn't really want to beat her that much because she was a pretty helpful person. Um, but Chris was running and I was going to help him. Um, and so we lost that one. But then after that, I had a string of wins where I was able to help young people get into office. There was a state rep, a young Puerto Rican guy, Chris Soto, uh, who ended up going on to work in the governor's office, one state rep. I was in North Carolina for a few years and helped uh, far left progressive uh, run for the school board and win. Um, and then I came back here to Hartford, Connecticut and helped my friend with Elise Bermudez win her city council race and then worked for her for a few years as her executive assistant. Uh, now I'm back in the campaign world, managing a state Senate race. And as Calico mentioned, I managed a mayoral race uh, last year. So <clears throat> mostly pretty local, no federal work yet. Um, and almost always very progressive candidates uh, in the race as my uh, client. What have you found like as you're kind of, you know, helping organize for these campaigns, talking to voters and getting out there and pushing these progressive policies. What are some of the lessons maybe you've learned in, um, in chatting with voters that like, you know, what are the, what are the messages that resonate? What are the things about progressive policies or progressive values that seem to, to do well with voting? So voters? I would say, yeah, it's good that you broke those into two buckets because one is absolutely useless. And the other one is what the whole election is about. So policies have nothing to do with why people vote. People do not turn out to vote because they want to legalize weed unless there is a ballot initiative on the ballot. 
um, which most of the states that can do that have already done it. But when it comes to like places like Connecticut, healthcare, none of it doesn't matter. What matters is generally speaking, how folks see the world, right? And that comes down to values usually. It also comes down a bit to who the person is and what their background is. Uh, and it also how the various uh, numbers play out in your town. Uh, and so if folks are already accustomed to the Republicans always winning, even if you have a good amount of Democrats, they probably won't turn out. Um, and so there's just a, a ton of different factors that really have little to do with what most people might think of like politics. Um, the other piece of it is, you know, your candidate is super, super important. <laughs> Whether or not you can get them to put in the effort is going to make a big difference. Um, but the machine of contacting people and recording your contacts with people and identifying who is your supporter, who is not your supporter, and who is uh, able to be swayed is 99% of the campaign. Um, whenever you have a situation where most people don't vote, that means that the election will be a turnout election. Whichever side turns their people out more will win. Well, all elections are less than 50% turnout elections except for the president. Uh, so that means literally everything except for president comes down to turnout. Uh, and whether people will vote for you is a different question if they're going to vote at all. Uh, and so there are lots of people that just don't vote at all. And so you can try to fight over the people that are definitely going to vote and see if you can swing them to your side, or you can get people who don't vote to get out and vote. And all campaigns have some amount of both for sure. Um, and there's some other ways you can increase your voters as well as registering people. Um, but it has, when it comes down to like planning what we're going to do, the platform is like the afterthought of the afterthought and i know a lot of progressive organizers and lefties are just like also always so upset by that <laughs> but it's the reality of politics and i really do believe i'm there to win and get progressive folks in there and they will make the laws later all the, the promises and all these different things people are lying right a lot of people will make promises they literally just can't implement um and so for me my job as a progressive that does operate in the electoral system is to make sure that really strong left candidates become elected officials, can introduce public policy um, that maybe the public isn't going to be 100% on board for, right? Like if we were to say we wanted full legalization with full equity, it's the right thing to do, but you maybe don't get 51% of the public to do that. But the same thing could have been said for desegregation of our schools, for giving women the right to vote, right? That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it because we didn't get 51% of the time. We still needed to do it. Uh, and so for me, the, the sort of like you got to appeal to the middle or policies like it's just that's not really what politics is about. Um, and I want folks to be able to win. And so I think in order to win, we have to get down to what it's really about power, groups, money, all of that good stuff. Yeah, no, I really appreciated your analysis there. And I think like one of the things you're talking about in terms of it's not policies, it is values or, or like your viewpoints. Uh, it's actually something that I, I was reading this rereading this book by George Lakoff called Don't Think uh -huh, of an Elephant. Yeah. And oh, I know that it, book very well. Yes, very much. It gets, changed how I looked at everything, man. <laughs> no doubt about it. It's, it's, it really is eye opening. And I would encourage anyone who's mm -hmm. listening to this to go check out uh, Don't Think of an Elephant by George Lakoff or go look him up on YouTube. He talks absolutely, you know, he really talks about sort of how there are two political lenses with which people view the world, right? You either have what he calls the nurturant parent model, which is what progressives or Democrats tend to lean towards, uh, which, you know, um, is where you get sort of these policies like health, Medicare for all or student debt forgiveness. It comes from this place of a nurturant parent model. And we don't have enough time in this conversation to go too deep into that. <laughs> but the other one is this sort of strict 
strict father model, strict right? Father, the strict yeah. strict parent model, which is, you know, where sort of the conservatives or, you know, the the Trump side of things really come down to. They're used to this sort of hierarchy built into their into their psyche, which is, you know, men above women, uh, rich over poor, uh, white over black, right? There's these it comes built- down to strong versus weak, right? Yes, absolutely. It is like you said about power, right? Um, so I do think it's really interesting that, you know, so often uh, progressives, and we even saw it in the um, Democratic primary this this l- latest election, where Elizabeth Warren her whole her whole motto was "I have a plan for that." Right now, she's also yep, nobody cared. She's also <laughs> you know, although she didn't win, she didn't win the nomination, she is somebody who also appeals very much to that value set of voters as well, which is why I do think like she does do well in progressive circles as well. But you know, I do find it fascinating that we as um, lefties and as progressives are just kind of we're dumbfounded where people don't understand that the policy is the right policy um and sometimes it is because we're not leading from this value set um that we're talking about well i think i yeah i mean i agree with that i i also want to point to so lorenzo jones from catal he's a good homie of mine he's been doing a lot of work we're trying to close rikers and he spoke at one of mcba's events in new york where he said we don't win when we're right we win when we're powerful and so that's also you know reframed how it looked at a lot of things because you can be right and yell at an empty room all day long and that doesn't mean you're going to win anything no matter how right you are and so being right is not sufficient uh it doesn't it is not justice just to yell the correct thing uh we have to actually be looking at power who has it how do we get more of it and what would we do with it when we got it uh and so and what kinds of power are there because there's lots of different things. Folks can look up uh, Rules for Radicals, and then there's also the Politics of Nonviolent Direct Action by Gene Sharp. I hope I'm not getting that name wrong. Um, But there's just tons of different types of power that we can and could be utilizing or trying to figure out. Um, You know, there's, of course, economic power. Money is a clear way that you can get what you want. Uh, And how you define power is another conversation, right? It's like your ability to exert your will on your environment, but lots of people define it differently. Um, But things like disruptive power. That is the people can disrupt what is happening at the government and force them to change what they were originally going to do through disruption, right? Like protests and sit-ins and things like that. So there's all these different types of power out there um, where I feel like in the progressive world, we are taught a very narrow part of what power looks like or how we get it. Especially when I was in college, you know, like 2008 to 2012-ish, uh, the idea of privilege, the idea of uh, who is able to claim space and who is able to speak with authority on certain things. Uh, you know, as a Puerto Rican, trying to lead a Puerto Rican organization, the question of was I Puerto Rican enough to be a president of a Puerto Rican organization? Uh, and what does that mean? How do we define any of these things? But these are really big issues that I think organizers, politicians, uh, activists need to grapple with before they'll be effective. Uh, and I don't think we do it enough. Um, and that's why I always try to do that in the different organizations that I'm in to really bring this conversation about power and effectiveness uh, and not letting our organizations become simply out therapy outlets for folks that are frustrated. Like our, our communities deserve and need better than people just venting. Uh, and so I want to encourage everyone as much as I possibly can, right, to be spending all of our mental energy, which is limited, on creating solutions. 
Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's actually a great transition into sort of this next little segment before we wrap things up, which is, you know, I really want this podcast to be able to give people sort of a hopeful vision for the future. Right? I think it's easy to get sort of wrapped up in all of the bad news and all of the sort of things going on in DC, or obviously just being stuck in the middle of this pandemic right now. You know, from your standpoint, you're somebody who is helping to lead a very powerful organization, uh, who's getting things done to the local level as well. Like what maybe is something that's on the horizon that gives you hope? Or what is something that you think um, folks can do um, to try to find some sort of positive way to channel their energy at a time when it feels like, you know, maybe we feel a little powerless? Hmm. Well, as far as what we can do to feel powerful in a moment like this, I think I am inspired by how the movement has positioned itself through very difficult times to be ever more powerful. And I guess I would say the situation in New York. Um, so in New York, legalization is being hotly debated and there's lots of proposals, but it is clear that the demand for equity is holding up New York legalization. And that means that the black women who are leading the black and Puerto Rican caucuses in New York are powerful enough to shut this whole thing down unless we get what we want. So that is reassuring. Seeing safe banking in federal legislation, you know, so quickly, uh, I think is also, it's clear that we're having an impact. And it's sometimes hard to know how powerful you are when the rest of the world is just in flames around you. Um, but you find out when you start to pick a fight. Uh, and I think having seen how when MCBA decides, all right, well, we're going to invest some resources in New York and we're going to bring people with us and we're going to figure this out. The number of people that are ready to throw down with us is bigger and more powerful than ever, but also every time it happens is bigger than I expect. So, you know, having a stronger movement backing you up uh, is a position I don't think we were in four years ago. And now with everything that's going on, as far as issues go, even cannabis is getting continuously stronger and equity is getting continuously stronger, where equity organizers are the ones leading a lot of these discussions around what legalization will look like and stopping it if need be. So I'm very inspired that we're in that spot and that we're able to take a stance and, and pick a fight however we need to uh, and sort of you know sound the alarms that this is where we can leverage the national movement on a local space. Uh, and it's places like New York that if we do leverage that, it'll change all the other states, right? Every other state will have to readjust to how New York's re new reality is. And so we're able to leverage this national network locally over and over and over again. So if you're out there and you're an activist and you are ready to cause some trouble, we can leverage attention on every local fight that's possible. And the more of those local fights that are happening and the more of those fires that people are starting that we can pour gasoline on and we can bring wood and bring folks to teach you how to build a bigger fire and a bigger bonfire, um, the possibilities are quite endless. And the way that Occupy spread um, is the way that any of our issues, if we actually just get effective enough, can spread incredibly rapidly. And so this moment has also shown that like the old guard, the old way of doing things can dissolve very quickly and can change very quickly. And we can push on them to dissolve and change quickly. So nothing that we thought was like set in stone is actually set in stone. And that's an incredibly liberating uh, position to be in because it means nothing oppressive uh, is that far away from being undone at this moment. Like we're, you know, however many steps of separation away from solving really big great big problems. Uh, the question is be which ones we solve and in what time frame. 
and that will be determined by who decides to invest time and energy uh, to helping us solve them. But it's clear we marshaled incredible resources into what is now the equity movement, uh, and it's paying incredible dividends all over the place. I love it, man. I appreciate you leaving us with some good positivity there. I definitely agree that <clears throat> we're in a position to be able to, as Representative John Lewis calls it, raise good trouble, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I'm very lucky and uh, honored to be able to be on the board of Minority Cannabis Business Association with you, good sir, and be causing the good trouble that we are. And uh, I really do appreciate you joining us on this very first episode of ColecoVision and letting us learn a little bit more about yourself, sort of your background getting into this industry, and also how people can get in involved in and how the progressive left can organize to more victories which leads to better quality of life in all of our lives so i appreciate you joining us with my man and all the work that you're doing you too brother i'm glad to be doing it with you as well we got a lot of work to do but we'll get it done absolutely and to everybody who joined us today i appreciate you tuning in to another episode or the very first episode of ColecoVision, and look forward to talking to you some more in future episodes to come until next time take care of each other and aloha